Continuing in our series in Leviticus, we come this morning to Leviticus chapter 6, verses 19 through 30. Our Old Testament complementary passage is Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So with your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2, in honor of God's word, please stand. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, For behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, continuing in the reading of God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. A tenth of an ephah of fine flour is a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the courts of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken, but if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up 
with fire. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes, help us to see our Savior, in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So if you are of a certain age, meaning younger than 20, you might look at this passage and go, what on earth does this have to do with me? In fact, if you are older than 20, you may also look at this passage and think, what on earth does this have to do with me? What's this business about boiling and scouring and blood and garments and bulls and eating here and it's holy and don't touch it and all that stuff? Why is this passage here? And why am I being asked to give a few minutes of my attention to it? What possible application or relevance does this ancient 3,500-year-old story spoken in a completely different language from a completely different group of people in a completely different historic context. How can this possibly be relevant to me? I think it's a fair question. I think it's a legitimate question. Don't be afraid of it. Face it. Face it dead on. Is the Word of God active and living more powerful than a two-edged sword or not? If it is, if this is the holy word of God and if it is meant for his people throughout history, then surely, definitively, without question, God has something for you and me in this unusual, obscure text this morning. And I'll just lay it out right at the beginning. If this is irrelevant, if this ethic is irrelevant, if these scenes that we are seeing don't have any real application to my life and to my world and my reality today, what's your alternative? What's the worldview you would like? Do you want to get out of here with cancel culture? Do you want to get out of here where people are, are just... You heard the, the, the story about this woman who supposedly grabbed a bicycle from a bike rack and, and paid for it and then people tried to grab the bicycle from her and she ended up on YouTube and her life is ruined when she was just trying to stick up for the fact that she'd rented a bicycle. This culture, brothers and sisters, is nasty. This culture is vicious. This culture is grotesque. It is nothing more than a lynch mob. We eagerly run after people to cancel them. Because in canceling them, it makes me look better. It makes me feel righteous. It makes me feel like at least I'm not such a horrible human being because I was able to cancel them. And yeah, I destroyed a man's life. Yeah, I destroyed a family. Yeah, I've destroyed things around me, but I feel good. I feel better. There's your other alternative. The muck, the moral sewage, the vicious 
nastiness of a culture that will surround you all the time with hatred, with toxic, with judgment. Personally, I'm going to go with the 3,500-year-old text. I'm going to go with a text with a God who tells me this is eternal, this has stood the test of time, this stands athwart history itself, this is not a product of an age, it's not a product of a day, it is the product of God Himself creating the world, creating all things to be in harmony and perfection with Him, and then calling you and me into that relationship. Building this tabernacle, this glorious picture of Eden itself, right there in the Holy of Holies, precious gold, covering the mercy seat. Precious golden lamp shining light of presence upon the bread. Each loaf of bread representing one of the twelve tribes of Israel in the communion with God that is found here in this holy place. This Eden. This place of peace and security. But you know, Eden is getting carried through the wilderness, isn't it? And not just carried through the wilderness, beloved. If you'll look back at Exodus, you will see that 600,000 adult men left Egypt. Beloved, that's an army. An army 600,000 strong. We've already noted as we looked at the priests and their responsibilities, or the, the, the Levites rather, and their responsibilities, that Moses tells us there were 10,000 men whose sole assignment was to carry the parts of the tabernacle as it moved through the wilderness. You've got Eden. You've got God's glory house. All the gold, the embroidery, the silver, the precious wood, all of these things that pharaohs had been accumulating to them dead selves over the generations. Now the living God says, not only here is my glory house, but this glory house is going to march through the wilderness. And I'm going to lead my people through the wilderness and we're going to come to the land of promise. The land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land that I swore by myself and I said, I will not relent. This is your land. The time has come. We are now moving forward. That's the vision. That's the image. That's what's going on here in this text. Now, the particular text itself is actually a repetition. Because if you look back to Exodus, you will see this exact same uh, details in terms of what the priests are supposed to be doing. Here's what the priest's offering looks like. Here's how it's, here, here's what he is to bring. Here's what he is to do. The big difference between the Exodus and the Leviticus narrative, and you can check me later, double Double check, read both passages. 
The big difference between these two parallel passages is this passage focuses on the how. That passage focuses on the what. This passage focuses on how the priest is to consume the offering before God. And as soon as you get to the word how, you start getting right to the heart. Any parent can tell you. It's not just saying yes ma'am, no ma'am. It's how you say yes ma'am and no (laughs) ma'am. It's not just saying, okay, I'll do the dishes. It's how you say, okay, I'll do the dishes. And that makes all the difference in the world. And that's what our passage this morning is focused on, is focused on the how. Now, the scripture gives us this grand narrative, this grand, this grand story that the light presses into the darkness, that there is a sin, there's a brokenness, there's a chaos, it's a fallenness. It it wasn't designed to be this way. We weren't made to die. We weren't made to kill one another. Animals weren't made to, to this horrible Darwinian existence. This is not how things should be. There should be peace, and there should be harmony, and there should be light. And beloved, that is exactly the story of the gospel. That the gospel light, the truth, presses in on the darkness. It presses in on the chaos, and the darkness and the chaos cannot withstand it. Because God himself has declared that the nations will come to Mount Zion. The nations will flow. They will come rejoicing, thankful, and eager to come and know Eden, to know healing, to know peace. They will come and desire it. The problem is this breaking in of the gospel, this imposition of the reign of Christ onto the sewage and the chaos and the disgustingness that you and I contribute all the time. You and I add to all the time. The breaking in, beloved, is first in your heart. I don't like that. (laughs) I am all about God straightening out that person. I am all about God controlling that arena. I am all about God breaking into the chaos that is our political reality. I am all about God breaking into the chaos that is our social arena. I'm all about God breaking into the ugly, the toxic, the nasty. Except when he starts monkeying with my marriage. Except when he starts telling me how I'm supposed to love my wife. When he starts monkeying with how I'm supposed to find my entertainment. How I'm supposed to spend my free time. How I'm supposed to order my day. 
Beloved, God breaking into history, which he is doing. Breaking into history is a story of him breaking into people. It's a story of him breaking into you. And breaking in to me. And I just want to note two things out of this story. As I mentioned, this is the what, the bulls, the eating, the scouring, all of that has already been talked about. But we've just got two things here. And that is the how. There are two things that you see in this passage that come out of this passage that tell us how you and I, priests of Almighty God, if you heard it throughout the worship service, I hope you have. You heard it from the call to worship You heard it in the confession of sin. I hope you heard it in the assurance of pardon. You and I, priests of God, a kingdom, a chosen people, a holy race, are supposed to do two things. The first is, in verses 19 through 23, we see a picture of complete dedication. There's not an ounce that's held back. Look at your passage again. Those cakes. The priest bakes the cake. He comes. He offers them. He doesn't eat any of it. The passage is very clear. Nothing from this cake of fellowship that is the priest's. Now the people, they joined in in the eating. But not the priest. Not with his grain offering. The priest... To be in fellowship with God, his fellowship must be completely consumed. The second thing I want you to notice from this passage is in verses 24 to 30. And an emphasis on complete holiness. We'll see that in a little more detail here in just a minute. But I do want to move fairly rapidly through this. These are, these are topics that we're coming back again and again to. Moses is continually setting before us, God through Moses, is continually setting before us this picture, this picture of Eden, this picture of redemption, this grand question of how do we come back to the Holy of Holies. That's what all of this is about. That's what all of this place, how do we get back into Eden? All of this is the, is the story, is the narrative of this. And so we're going to be hitting these themes again and again and again and again. But what uniquely stands out in this passage this morning is that the priest is to be completely dedicated to God. That communion offering, that fellowship offering, is to be completely The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Beloved, your and my lives, communion with God, priests with God, your and my lives are to be completely given to Him. 
completely without reservation, completely without anything held back, completely without any, anything held back. As the priest with the grain offering, this offering of communion, this offering of fellowship, it's completely given over to God. And of course, that is our challenge. It's our challenge not just giving ourselves completely over to God, but it's a challenge in terms of what does that look like? What does it look like for your life, for my life, to be completely given over to God? For a lot of us, it looks like a bunch of rules. If I'm going to say your life is to be completely given over to God, God is to have dominance in every aspect of your life, your follow-up question to me is going to be, okay, what practically does that mean? And my response to you is going to be, well, here's a list. 492 things that you can do to show that your life is completely given over to God. I want to offer you a different vision I want to offer you an alternative vision. I hope you hear me. I hope you hear me clearly. <laughs> I hope you hear me. Because this is a completely alternative vision to the issue of rules and regulations and, and, and lists and, and, and moral improvement and all the things. Here's the alternative vision, beloved, if I show you my Savior. If I show you my Jesus. If I show you that one who is so lovely. If I show you that one who redeemed me from the pit. If I show you that one that every time I turned my back on him, he was there to welcome me home. If I showed you that beautiful, beautiful face. If I showed you those beautiful hands. If I showed you those beautiful, horrifying, terrifying scars. If you saw the Jesus that I see, if you saw the beautiful one that is held forth in all of his majesty, all of his beauty, do you think I'd have to come up with a list? Do you think I'd have to tell you? If you saw his loveliness, if you saw His tenderness, if you saw His mercy and compassion, do you think you would need a list? I think that's part of our problem. In fact, I think that's at the heart of our problem. I think that we tend to look at all the lists and not look at our Savior. To be wholly consumed, to be completely consumed by Him, is to be enraptured the way that only two lovers can be. Over the years of my ministerial service, I have counseled 
I would guess hundreds, maybe, of young couples coming and pursuing marriage. And there is one unifying reality among every single young couple that I have ever counseled that is considering marriage. Every single one of them. Some of them are in this room, and I'll tell it, I've told them before, I'll say it again. You look at two young people that are contemplating marriage, and you're looking at two people who do not have one rational thought between them. You're looking at two star-struck idiots. And I can sit there, and I can say, you realize you're going to be frustrated with her, and here's how you're going to have to deal it when deal with it when you get frustrated. And he's going to look at me and go, you don't understand. Silly man. No one has ever had a love like ours. Do you think maybe there's some truth there? Do you think maybe there's something there that God wants us to be so enraptured with the one who truly is perfectly loving? The one who is the perfect bridegroom? The one who is our perfect lover of our souls? I think if we were wholly consumed, the issue of what holiness looks like would kind of be a non-issue. The second thing I want you to note from this passage is this odd command regarding blood. Now, the sacrificial system, you've got a priest, you've got Levites, you've got people bringing bulls, you've got people... Anybody ever seen a chicken slaughtered? Maybe seen a goat slaughtered? (laughs) It's not a tidy affair. If you can go through the process of slaughtering an animal, particularly something as big as a bull, without losing a drop of blood, without getting anything splattered anywhere, you are doing pretty well. So why is this blood such a big deal? Notice in the last section of your passage here. When any of its blood, this is verse 27, any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. The earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken, but if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, it shall be scoured. No sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting. Is it just God hates blood? It's gross? Of course not. We're speaking about sin offerings. We're speaking about how we are united to God. How we are reconciled to God. And how precious that blood of atonement is. How precious even in, from a bull, from a goat, from a lamb. These, these, these childish pictures. 
these children's storybooks of the Old Testament that are pointing us to the fulfillment, the reality in Christ Jesus, even in the children's storybook version, a drop of blood means wash the garment, break the pot, break the clay pot, scour that bronze vessel. Don't you dare bring a drop of this precious blood and treat it profanely. Oh, beloved, when that blood that this pictured, when that blood that this pointed us to, when that blood itself spilled out upon the earth, how precious was that in God's sight? How precious is it? It is so precious that even the pictures of that blood, the pictures of the redemption that Jesus Christ is going to provide, those pictures are so holy that if a drop contaminates your shirt, you need to leave, you need to go into a holy place, you need to clean that shirt out, and then you can come back again. That's How precious the blood of Jesus Christ is, both in its picture and in its ultimate reality. And so, the writer of the Hebrews says, if this isn't good enough for you, I got nothing else. That's a a paraphrase. More accurately, what the writer of the Hebrews says is, therefore, you should take greater heed, lest we fall away. We should not be as those of the Israelites. For what sacrifice do you think remains to the one who has spurned the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ? What more is God going to do for you? He said this blood is so precious that a drop of it is going to change your entire day. <laughs> you got to go wash your clothes, you got to come back, you got to get in a the blood is precious. Because this blood is the blood of redemption. It's a life that is given because you deserve death. And you placing your hands on it says This is my sacrifice. God says, you don't treat that lightly. To come back around to where we started, what relevance does a 3,500-year-old text have for you and me today? What relevance does the sacrifice of Jesus Christ have for you and for me today? How important is that blood? How important is it to you? As a priest, beloved, you and I are called to be completely given over every moment, every day to God, and yet we're not. Anybody who says they are is lying to themselves and to you. 
You're not given over to God perfectly and lovingly and completely all through the day. It's why you need the blood. It's why you need forgiveness. It's why you need mercy. It's why you need that atonement. And beloved, this is what we proclaim. That we are here. It is finished. It's done. I'm struck in the New Testament with how many times the word joy appears. I write these things that your joy may be full. And beloved, I promise you, if you spend time meditating on the beauty of Christ, if you spend time meditating on the loveliness of Christ, if you spend time even now as we come to the table meditating on His lovely, beautiful, perfect, horrifying sacrifice, substitute for you, and for me. The beauty, the loveliness, the gentleness, the compassion of this Savior. Take your cancel culture. Keep it. Have it and be welcome to it. Have that garbage and be pleased with it. It's poison. It's toxic. It kills. It is death itself. And here's life. Here's life and joy and value and purpose. And it will cost you everything. You must be completely given to God. And you'll fall. But he keeps you. He prayed to his father that his father would keep you. And his father will not turn his back on his son's prayer. Father, your word is sweet upon our ears. It is sweet upon our lips. May it be sweet upon our lives. May we take this vision this vision of holiness, this vision of Christ, this vision of the preciousness, this vision of the security throughout the ages. Let me take this vision and shape our homes, our marriages, our entertainments, our pleasures, our, our work, everything completely dedicated unto you, which is our reasonable service for one who has done so much for us. In Christ's name, amen.